seated and join me, if you will, in turning to 1 Kings chapter 3. We'll be reading 16 through the end of the chapter, and then I, I'm going to drop down and just read the last verse of chapter 4, uh, because in uh, a very real sense, uh, all of our text today and all of chapter 4 fit together. The previous uh, section, uh, Solomon had prayed for wisdom. It pleased the Lord so much. The Lord said, I'm going to also give you riches and wealth and fame. And what we find in our passage today and next week is God coming through with all of that. We see first wisdom, then we see wealth and riches uh, honor and fame in chapter 4. So I wanted to preach on all of it together, but we're going to split that up and just look at the first part tonight. Um, so this is First Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, the word of Almighty God. Now two women who were harlots came to the king and stood before him. And one, one woman said, O oh my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house, and I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day after I had given birth that this woman also gave birth, and we were together. No one was with us in the house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead. But when I examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, no. But the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, No, but the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. Thus they spoke before the king. And the king said, The one says, This is my son who lives, and your son is the one, the dead one. And the other says, No, but your son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. Then the king said, Bring me a sword. So they brought a sword before the king, and the king said, Divide the living child in two, and give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son, and she said, O oh my lord, give her the living child, and by no means kill him. But the other said, let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. So the king answered and said, Give the first woman the living child, and by no means kill him. She is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment which the king had rendered, and they feared the king, for they saw that the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. And dropping down to chapter 434. And men of all nations, from all the kings of the earth, who had heard of his wisdom, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for this, your word. Instruct us through this astonishing event that we might more clearly understand our, our King and that we might long for his wisdom and judgment over our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's Solomon. He's the the new king. And uh, if we consider that in the first chapter, we saw that even David's best friends were split over who they wanted to have as king, we can probably assume that maybe about half of Israel wanted Adonijah. So here's the new king. Half of them may or may not have wanted you as king. But surely everyone has their eyes on Solomon. They want to see what kind of king will he be. The same way we do every time we get a new president, right? The first month, uh, there maybe you all don't do this, but the first month I tend to watch what happens more. And then I get lazy whether I like the guy or not and uh, don't pay attention to as many of the things going on uh, as I probably should. But whenever there's a new king, you watch him at first and all eyes are turned to Solomon. What kind of king will he be? And here, coming up through the court system is a case, and it's the case of all of them that come before him that the Holy Spirit gives us as a sample. Uh, But I think it's more than that. It's not just that this is a sample. It seems to me that the last verse of chapter 3 indicates that this case, above all the others, was the one the Holy Spirit used in his own day to prove to the world what type of king Solomon would be. And it's a it's an interesting case because it's a case that shouldn't have come up in Israel at all. And if one of your questions with this chapter like mine is, how are there prostitutes in Israel coming into the courtroom before the king of Israel whose job is to prosecute according to the Mosaic law which condemns prostitutes to death, and both of them walk away at the end of the story unpunished, I have no answer for you. The chapter isn't concerned with giving us a chapter. That's rather strange. Perhaps, if anything, it reminds us that Solomon is not the king we need. He is a wonderful king in many ways, but we need a king who executes full righteousness. Or maybe its intent is to comfort us. If Solomon is in a little way an image of Christ, then we see a friend for sinners. Maybe. It's hard to know what we're supposed to do with this case. So we'll leave the fact that there are prostitutes on the side unanswered because the text leaves it unanswered. Uh, But This is a case that probably came through all the courts of Israel, even though it doesn't say that in the text. Realize that the king did not look at every court case himself. And so here is one that has stumped every level of of civil uh, government in Israel. It probably started with local elders in a community. Then it would have gone to the tribal elders wherever these women lived then it would have moved to the regional elders wherever they lived, and then it would have moved to the city gates of Jerusalem where there was 
somewhat of a supreme court set up. Uh, elders uh, from throughout the land would take turns sitting, as it were, on, on a court there in the gates. And then it went even beyond that to Solomon, because no judge wanted to give a verdict. And if you think about this case, it's understandable. Uh, it's a she said, she said case. There's zero witnesses. There are two women, a dead baby and a living baby, and no witnesses. The fact that they're prostitutes is probably relevant here. They helped each other give birth in this house, and they couldn't go out and get help because they would have been probably shunned by every other woman in Israel. So there are zero witnesses to say this is her son versus the other woman's. Whatever judge makes a verdict is probably going to have to roll the dice. Go by who looks nicer, or whose uh, emotional appeal sounds stronger, or uh, who does he look like game, which is kind of dangerous with a newborn baby and only uh, the mothers. So no judge wants to touch this one. It comes up through the courts. It's also a very emotional uh, case, and probably that uh, contributes to no judge wanting to be a part of this, right? You, you're rolling the dice. If you choose wrong, you are not only taking a child away from its rightful, real, natural-born mother, but you could potentially be putting this child with someone who has been negligent. I'm not saying she was negligent, but there's at least maybe that question mark for the judge. Was this woman negligent and the child died, and if I pick wrong, I'm sending away from the real mother to a negligent foster mother? It's a terrifying case. It's emotionally driven. Uh, One of these women is doing something horrible, but while we should say she's doing something horrible, we also need to realize that she is grieving. One of these women woke up and found her baby dead next to her. And no one was there to comfort. There was nothing she could do. She's doing something horrible now, but she's doing it in grief, desperation, probably a a little irrationally. When, When we're grieving over someone who was old and died, sometimes we act unrighteously, unfairly to other people. Imagine it being your newborn son, your newborn child, and there's no one to comfort you. She's acting wrongly, but she is grieving. And the other party is acting out of fear because there's been either an attempted kidnapping or they're in the process of an attempted kidnapping. Depends on which is telling the truth, doesn't it? One of them is uh, grieving. The other one is terrified of losing her son. No one wants this case. And here it comes before young Solomon. And all eyes in Israel are turned to see what he will do. Solomon's been given wisdom by God. What will he do in this case? Will he slip into a closet and use the Urim and the Thummim to 
get a supernatural telling on the case. We don't see him doing that. We don't see him seeking a vision or a dream. God, you said you'd give me wisdom, so just give me the answer. That, that's not Solomon's view of wisdom. When we look here at this case, Solomon's view of wisdom is, although it is given to him by God, nonetheless his wisdom is, um, struggle for the word here, ordinary, natural, meaning it's not a supernatural moment. He looks at the way things are naturally and is able to see what no one else in Israel was able to see. And, and this is his wisdom. He does this thing with the sword and he's looking for something. He's not going to kill the baby. He knows the natural response of a mother will be to save her child. That's, what, that's the simplicity of his wisdom. Isn't that such a simplistic solution to this? No real mother is going to let her child be cut in half if she can do anything about it. No one else in Israel thought of this. And I doubt, I know I wouldn't have thought of it either. It sounds horrific, but it's him applying a natural wisdom. He has observed in the way of God's creation that mothers will lay down their lives for their children, that they will do anything for their children. Solomon makes a wise judgment based off of that fact. If this mother is one of the rare exceptions who, who doesn't care enough about her child for that, she... I suppose Solomon would have concluded she isn't worthy of having the child anyway then. Uh, but his thought is very basic. A natural mother will guard her child's life even if she has to see it fostered by someone else. When we look at the book of Proverbs, isn't so much of it this very basic earthy wisdom? If you take... A, so many of these proverbs out of Solomon's proverbs by themselves and say, wow, is that profound? Most of them, I at least reflected on this week, most of them aren't profound. A lazy person's going to starve. Not, not super profound, Solomon. But then we're lazy, so we need the wisdom of Solomon to tell us not to be lazy. Um, you, you know, you can take any number of these things. Uh, gray hairs are a, a great counselor. Well, that's not super profound, Solomon. Older people have more experience. But we're foolish. We look for young counselors or no counselors at all. So we need Solomon to give us this proverb that's so earthy and simple. Um, so when we think about biblical wisdom, what we're seeing in Solomon is that it observes the natural way of things in God's world and thinks simply instead of trying to make everything complicated. Solomon is able to cut through by the wisdom of God so many things that other judges weren't able to discern. I wonder how many 
other judges, other elders of Israel were standing in Solomon's court that day, some of whom probably passed the buck on this case to send it on to the next court. And as soon as Solomon brings this verdict and the mother cries out to defend her child, I wonder how many elders were standing there saying, oh, that's her. That, that was easy. Or, or if they didn't get there, I wonder if their wife was there saying, how didn't you think of this? Obviously, that's the thing to do. It's so simple. It's wisdom from God. Wisdom from God that has led Solomon to observe creation. And in fact, in chapter 4, in chapter 4, uh, verses 32 and 33, we'll look at more next week, it says of Solomon, he spoke 3,000 proverbs and his songs were 1,005. There's a goal, Jesse. 1,005. He also spoke to, spoke not to trees. He spoke of trees. You got to get that one right. He spoke of trees from the cedar tree of Lebanon, even to the hyssop that springs out of the wall. He spoke also of animals, of birds, of creeping things, and of fish. In other words, Solomon observed God's creation. He spent time studying science and nature and probably people watching. Don't you get that sense as you read Proverbs that he sat people watching? Look at that fool. Walking into that woman's house. We all know how that's going to end. Look at that fool. Following those people, they're going to murder him in the back alleyway. Solomon people watched. He nature... In other words, God gave him wisdom, but this wasn't just dropped into his head. He knew that God giving him wisdom required something of him. Stewardship to observe and to study. And the result was a solution so simple. Obviously, this is the real mother. And notice Israel's response. Israel's response is to fear him. Some people woke up that morning, no doubt, thinking of this young pup, this least of the king's sons, this result of David's sins. And they went home that night fearing the king. Why do they fear the king? I think we could paraphrase what's going on here by saying that here is a king who seems to see all and nothing seems hidden from his eyes. What all the elders and judges of the land could not perceive in questioning these women, Solomon got to by pretending to pick up a sword. What can you hide from such a man? The wisdom of God leading to them fearing the king. I think we could even say here then that day Israel learned some wisdom 
Here's the king that serves God. He's the mediator between God and you. Now you fear him. That almost sounds like the beginning of Proverbs set up for us, doesn't it? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Solomon is pointing them to the God whom you should fear. His wise eyes see all. There is nothing hidden from him. God gave Solomon this wisdom, but Solomon knew he had to study to get to it. And we too often want to just throw out the fleece or have something dropped in our laps. But one of the applications from this section should be to say that we ought to diligently study God's creation as well. And we ought to be uh, anthropology students as well. But the most important thing is to see what Israel saw and see beyond it. Here is a king who seems to see awe, all, and we need fear for the one to whom he points. There is a king before whom absolutely nothing is hidden. Think of Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 5. There we read, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He, his delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall lay the, slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. See how Solomon in a small way points us to that kind of king. And Jesus isn't just a king like Solomon. Remember that Jesus says of himself in Matthew 12, one greater than Solomon has arrived. Remember what Paul says about Christ, that he is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All of them. One implication from that is that Solomon isn't just wise like Christ, but Solomon is wise because he has received from Christ wisdom. But we have Christ the King reigning now in whom all wisdom, infinite wisdom, rests. Think about how Christ cuts, uh, cuts right to the heart of things in people. He sees through people's lies throughout his ministry. Think about the wisdom that he expresses with his mouth. Remember how they spoke about his teaching. No one has ever spoken like this man. John 7. Matthew 7. For he taught them as one having authority. And not as those scribes. Now Solomon, here's a judge, unlike any judge in Israel. He speaks with authority. Bring me the sword. 
the child is hers. And not like so many judges who fumbled that same case. But here Christ, he teaches as one with authority. No one has ever spoken as this man. And this fact should comfort us. Should comfort us. In fact, as a parent of young children, I was reflecting, this is a terrible passage, isn't it? Until you get to the ending. Imagine your child either dead or then someone trying to steal your child. It's a horrifying thing. What comfort to live in Israel in Solomon's day as a parent and say, this king, he can protect my children. This king, he can guard us. Live in righteousness and you'll be fine under this king. And how much more ought we to feel this way with our king. Like Solomon, we should seek wisdom from God. Like Solomon, we should uh, study and grow in understanding. But even Solomon was limited, and you and I are no Solomon. But we have this king who is so much greater, wiser, all-knowing, all-seeing, Almighty, when faced with the brokenness of this world, the evil, the grief of this world, all, the, all of the things which the court cases mess up and the judges bumble or 12 men and women flop and do the wrong thing or don't care. All the policies that are against righteousness. When we look at all of this, we need the comfort that one day our king will in perfect wisdom administer absolute righteousness. He will not be stumped and he will not make a mistake. He discerns the hearts and the minds. The heart that may be deceitful and incredibly wicked. Jeremiah says the heart is incredibly deceitful and wicked. Who can know it? But do you remember how Jeremiah 17 continues? God says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Let us stand in fear and awe of this great king. Let us, because of that fear and awe, flee from sin, knowing that we will stand before him one day. Let us flee to Christ, remembering that this very passage, which informs us that he is the wisdom of God in in Paul's writings, also declares that this wisdom brings us to the foolishness of the cross where not many wise and not many uh, powerful, but we foolish things find the power of God and the wisdom of God. Here at the cross, we find his righteousness. We find our sanctification and redemption in him. 
Let us take comfort in this, in the midst of the injustice around us today. And even as we ask for wisdom to address the wrong, be encouraged that he will perfectly respond to what we are inadequate to judge. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Thanks be to God.